Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. As our world continues to witness converging crises of health, economic stability, climate change, and inequality and injustice, ESG seems to be having a moment. However, forward-thinking organizations understand that ESG and its business expectations represent a movement. Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Miner, Senior Ethics and Compliance Advisor, and today I'm joined by Che Sedanius, the Global Head of Financial Crime and Industry Affairs at Refinitiv, a London stock exchange group business. We're going to be talking about environmental, social, and governance initiatives, also known as ESG, and where organizations currently stand when it comes to ESG commitments, activities, analysis, and measurement. We'll also explore how different parts of the world execute on ESG and what factors are at play when implementing ESG strategies. Che, thanks for coming on the Principled Podcast. Can you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Your title is Global Head of Financial Crime and Industry Affairs, which might not scream ESG to many of our listeners. What's the connection? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. And thank you, Emily, for hosting this webcast. I'm delighted to to be joined with you. So broadly, let me take a step back. In terms of my role within Refinitiv, We are a big believer that in order to tackle many of the issues that we face today, including sustainability and ESG as a a measurement of trying to address the issues around allocating or shifting the allocation of capital to industries and sectors and companies who are trying to do the right thing and at the same time engaging with policymakers and helping them to understand what some of those challenges are, including data standards, and data taxonomies in order for us to achieve that goal. Why am I here? What's the connection between financial crime? It's there's a convergence between the financial crime activities that we're seeing, particularly related to environmental crime and what we call green crime, which is the intersection between illicit proceeds of illegal logging, illegal wildlife trafficking, illegal fishing, and many of the other aspects that influence and impact our environment and sustainability and the ESG agenda. So I work as a function of that. I work very closely with our sustainability finance team, with our ESG team, and in fact, to allow our our ability to combine our data sets that we both have uh, to enable both companies and sectors and policymakers to make more informed decisions and not just looking at environmental crime or sustainability agenda as purely as an act of trying to you know, meet the Green Deal and many of the, the aspects of the Green Deal that many organizations and, and jurisdictions have, but actually to look at it more holistically. So just as the sustainability team and the ESG team are doing more to look at our financial crime data, we at the same time are looking at ESG data in a different way that we haven't done in the past. And I think that this acceleration uh, of both of those issues are only going to, you know, gain momentum in the near future. Thank you, Che. When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that COVID is also accelerating 
the focus on ESG. Why is that? Absolutely. We launched a campaign about a year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, on a theme that we call green crime, which is that we were actually seeing the increased activity and potential impact of environmental crime issues that it has on sustainability, as I mentioned, with fishing and illegal logging, etc. And this is before COVID. When COVID happened, that was a game changer in terms of awareness that in fact our interaction with the wildlife and interaction with the wet markets and the trading of wildlife had an actual incredible impact in terms of spreading potential diseases. The awareness of the economic consequences, the social consequences, the consequences to, our, to the health of our families has now reached a point where maybe two years ago this would have been, oh, that's a very interesting idea, but I don't see how that's relevant. When we all know now that these things are not just about, you know, climate change, that's going to happen in the future, but in fact, they have a real impact on peace and security right now. And so that really is, is why COVID has been a real game changer in terms of raising awareness on this issue. Yeah, when you put it like that, you know, I'm thinking about all the interconnected elements, and it's really actually quite mind-boggling to think about how COVID and, you know, health and markets and countries and people and goods and services and the movement ideas how the movement of all of those things kind of are putting us where we are today. So, you know, maybe with that kind of big, sometimes overwhelming picture in mind, can I ask you to break down ESG into the E, the S, and the G and talk about where we are right now with respect to our understanding of what that is and kind of current activities and measurements related to the three pillars? Yeah, absolutely. So historically, up until today, the major focus has been on the E, or the environmental piece. The European Commission, the US, and many other jurisdictions are really focused quite a bit on you know, what should be re reported, what are the data taxonomies around that, and making sure that there's some kind of consistency in terms of what companies and organizations should be required to report. And there's, of course, a, a healthy debate about what should be voluntary versus what should be mandatory. The G, however, has received some attention, but the S has received very little attention. In fact, no one actually knows what the S actually means. And I mention the S because it is connected to the E. The labor uh, rights and the human rights and diversity and inclusion are very much connected to the environmental consequences so that we see that in many parts of the world, including the Middle East, including the U.S., we've been talking today, what's happening in Louisiana, they have consequences in terms of human movement and also criminal actors taking advantage of that. So, there's a, so we tend to think of the E and the S as a G as though they're separate pieces when they're in fact very much connected. And we know that from, again, from a financial crime perspective, that criminals are interconnected, they're global, they're very sophisticated, companies are interconnected, they're global, and it's really about causing real focus into these issues. So I think a lot of great work has been done on the E. We still have some work to do on the G, but the S, I think, is another piece that's going to receive increased focus. And, and we very quickly, I very quickly draw attention to a paper, in fact, that, that was launched and published a few months ago 
uh, with the leadership of the Thompson Waters Foundation to look at the S, uh, to actually say that, you know what, while there's more for us to do, there's enough data there for organizations and institutional investors to look at. And there's, you know, an incredible, you know, weight and, and much more work for us to kind of uh, really push in terms of policy reforms to make sure that the E, as much as received attention, that the S that receives equal amounts of attention as well. Yeah, actually, to that point that you were making around how the, the S, the social aspect is connected to the E, the environmental aspect, I just read yesterday that the U.S. Federal Health Department is creating a new office to address climate change as part of their broader health equity agenda. So again, that connection between the environment and how that's impacting society and inequality and justice. If I could, Emily, on that, there's no question that regulators, policymakers are are paying more attention to this now than ever. We know that the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, has made some very, you know, particular statements on this. The European Central Bank has made some very particular statements on this. And so the time for the industry at large to translate its language regarding what they say from a marketing perspective to actual action is the disconnect that we need to close. And we, of course, as a company are are committed to this and we can talk about that, but there's no question that this is the way the future, as I've said before, companies and industries can either, in Leah Coca's term, lead, follow, or get out of the way, but there's no question that as the title rightly makes the point that the ESG is not a moment, it is a movement. We're gonna see the greatest wealth transfer happen between one generation to another wide estimates in terms of what that transfer is, but it's somewhere around $30 trillion. And that is uh, quite an astounding number. So I think it's an an important piece for organizations to get on top of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you just mentioned the need for these efforts to be more than just marketing initiatives. And I want to kind of focus on that for a little bit, because we also have the stakeholder capitalism movement that intersects with ESG in a lot of ways. And there's a debate playing out right now in the pages of the Wall Street Journal about whether any of this talk is actually translating into action. You know, we're two years out from the business roundtables, you know, new declaration of the purpose of a corporation. And some say this is all hot air, whereas others are citing meaningful progress, albeit slow. Where do you fall down on this debate, the spectrum from, you know, nothing's happening at all to, yes, things are changing. So where do you come down on this debate in general, but then also, you know, in particular, in relation to ESG, our topic today? No, it's a great question. And there is a spectrum. There's a spectrum in terms of organizations who are still driven by short-term profit-making, versus a longer, more sustainable economic model. There's also debate about publicly traded versus privately held organizations, where the publicly traded organizations are still driven and still much pressured by the investor community to focus on short-term profit. And there's a wide spectrum. And I guess my point is the following. There's no clash between short-term profit and long-term profit. There is a clash, however, between short-term opportunism and more of a longer-term sustainable agenda. And this has to do as much with 
If you look at the diversity of boards, they've been shown to be more stable. The incomes and profits have been more stable over time. There's a connection between uh, organizations who are committed to more sustainable business practice and a more stable and profitable, you know, sort of trajectory in terms of where they go. And yes, you can make the argument, yes, CEOs, you know, they're being pressured by shareholders to continue to deliver against profit incentives. But there also needs to be a recognition that there's a longer play here. There's a play with the brand. There's a play about doing the right thing. And those things, as I said, the next generation, they will care. They will vote with their feet. They will vote with their asset allocation and the institutional investor community is starting to respond to this. There's a piece here about educating the industry and also educating the policymakers. There is no clash between a stakeholder capitalism piece and a shareholder capitalism piece that the two are becoming much more intertwined uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. And again, it gets into, do you want to lead on that, that, that discussion or do you want to pretend that you know nothing's going to change? Yeah, I, I read a statistic recently that Right now, 65% of the workforce in the United States is looking for another job. So again, kind of bringing back the connection to COVID in all of this. But that's a really staggering percentage that's, you know, I think higher than, than it's ever been. And so when we're faced with a situation where we already have labor shortages and it's really a, a labor market, the companies that are, you know, leading with their values, leading with their purpose, treating employees equitably, paying living wages, you know, doing the right thing publicly and behind closed doors. Those are really the organizations that are going to come out ahead. And, and you know, you cited some research. There's so much out there about how organizations that do the right thing also outperform on their bottom line. So it's, I feel like the the question about whether there's an ROI there really should be laid to rest. You're right. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a point that we collectively, that we certainly as a company and, and many others have to communicate that the UN social development goals and many other goals regarding you know, a more sustainable sort of future and economic model is not just the right thing to do, but it actually pays off. It gets into the short-termism versus the long-term is, I mean, and I'll just give a very you know, brief example. So Refinitiv, so while the name is fairly new, it, we used to be part of Thomson Reuters. We're fundamentally a data and technology company. We always have been. And look, we got started in the 1830s, right? So how did we get started? We got started in the fact that we used carrier pigeons to carry stock prices between Aachen, Germany, and Brussels. Now, we've come a long way from carrier pigeons Right? But the fundamentals of what we do, data, providing data to organizations and companies and, and others who need it, is the same. And it's the same thing with this. We will need to adapt. We need to adapt. And organizations will need to make a choice in terms of where they fit into, into that. Because we have every intention to continue, as we did in the 1830s, to, be, to continue that journey in the next 270 years as well. But, you know, look, sustainability and ESG... Are, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that these are some of the biggest challenges facing all of us. And it's not a company problem, it's not a policy problem, it's not a civics problem, it's, it's all of our issue. 
And it's really about how we as a company, how the private industry plays a role in doing that. Because, um, you know, as I said, it's either you adapt or you don't. I didn't know that origin story of Refinitiv. That's really incredible. So, you know, you're based in the UK. Um, Refinitiv is based in the UK. And the E with an ESG is more regulated in Europe than it is in the US where I sit. As you look at the kind of the, the landscape at a federal level, who are the role models out there? Yeah, no, I think there's, there's multiple role models. I think certainly within Europe, from a federal perspective, to put it in US terms, in terms of state versus federal, uh, the European Commission and the finance ministers in Europe have put a great emphasis and priority in translating the Green Deal, uh, their own version of the Green Green Deal into action. And part of those discussions as an advisor to that. But the US is also, in many aspects, is also a leader. We have, uh, you know, mayors of cities and we have states in the US who are really taking action as well. Now, unfortunately, from my perspective, there might be a disconnect. Uh, Historically, there might be a disconnect between the federal action versus the state, if you will. You know, I think that these things will, will come into their own. And it's not just a question of, of protecting the status quo versus uh, innovating, but you know, we all know the impact and the role of climate change that it has. We all know that the impact of human trafficking, as an example, and also the opportunities that it provides in terms of investing in, in technology, and that will be the future. Just like oil was the future in the beginning of the 19th century, data and technology is the new oil, if you will. And so, you know, that is the direction of travel. And I think it's a, it's only a matter of time uh, before the U.S. And, and, and many other jurisdictions, countries who are doing incredible work here, uh, can join forces to actually amplify, to force multiply all these actions in a way where maybe we haven't seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kind of, Following from that point, you mentioned the SEC earlier, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and you know they've recently announced that they're creating a task force or have created a task force on climate in ESG and are looking into climate disclosures. How do you think that is going to change the business landscape when it comes to advancing the ESG agenda. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking of other kind of international climate policy where you know the U.S. has been a participant but not uh, you know a ratified member because of our political situation and and it's more challenging to get consensus around that. But then we have from the business regulatory perspective some movement here that was recently announced. What do you think is going to come of that? Yeah, so, so I think there's two parts to this. The, the first is, as you mentioned, the announcement of the SEC is certainly isolated. There's been announcements by many regulators, uh, the G20 and, and ECB, European Central Bank, and many others, New York Fed, a former employer. That's the direction of travel, and they will do more work in this space. The issue that we need to resolve, in a way, is consistency in terms of definite, you know, very data and IT specific issues regarding standardized definitions, as an example, right? So 
doing the work with the, we did with the Thompson Reuters Foundation, when we digged into the S, as an example. As a company, we have 140 different data points when it comes to the social part. But when we dig into it, there is a lack of definitional issues that ensures consistency in terms of what human rights actually means. There's a gulf and a gap in what diversity actually means, because it will be country-specific, historically context-specific, and there needs to be a discussion around, okay, if we're going to require organizations to report and then to manage, then we need to get a discussion of what we're actually trying to capture and making sure that there's consistency internationally on these issues. So I think that that is where we need to go. And I know that in, you know, in many jurisdictions, there's an active debate in terms of data taxonomy. And just as in the financial crime space, going back to that, with the interlinkages, 20 years ago, there was an active discussion in terms of many of the predicate offenses actually meant an evolution of financial crime, like environmental crime, which is very much connected to ESG. And the ESG, that discussion is just starting uh, to develop in terms of getting, making sure that there's some consistency and also a public-private sector dialogue on key indicators, what should we focus on, and also not for it just to be about carrying a stick in terms of punishing uh, countries uh, or companies, but also providing an incentive for companies to do the right thing when then you can get into a, the capital regime from a financial sector perspective in terms of allowing for banks to benefit from capital relief if they're actually deemed to be doing the right things on reporting and all the rest of it. So, so it's a complex answer. It's a complex issue. But again, there's no question that the train has left the station. Now it's really about how we can you know, collaborate in a more effective way to, to get to the right place that we all want to be. Yeah, the examples that you shared were really helpful in just kind of explaining the complexity behind all of this. You're right. We, we can we can all agree on, you know, the goals are the outcomes that we're looking for, but then the how do you get there and the nuances and language and, and definitions and historical context that you were mentioning. I know when um, after George Floyd's murder, Aloren kind of took the opportunity to reflect on how we are encouraging diversity, equity, and inclusion in our own, you know, four walls, so to speak, as well as what we're doing in the broader community. And we had a series of conversations with our colleagues around the globe, and diversity meant very, very different things depending on, you know, what country we were calling in from because of the different historic political, cultural differences that we were all bringing to the table. And, and it was really fascinating and productive to explore those differences and figure out, you know, how do we normalize all of this so that we can make progress and what are those metrics and how are we measuring, et cetera. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. We've been talking a lot about ESG from a kind of a global landscape and I want to bring it down to Refinitiv. So this is a core, you know, part of your business is to, as you've talked about, you know, providing technology, data, expertise to your clients to help them make sustainable investment decisions, mitigate their risk, et cetera. 
How are you applying this internally, taking your own medicine, so to speak? What's Refinitiv's ESG strategy and what does that look like? Absolutely. So sustainability is, is core part of our ethos. In, in a really, when you think of what Refinitiv is, we're a collection of businesses, but sustainability is a key part of it. A, what are we doing to apply our own medicine? Uh, we have, we think, uh, fairly ambitious plans in terms of our own carbon footprint, meaning reduction of travel. We're committing to 65% of our suppliers uh, to give us a, a science-based emission plan in terms of what they're doing to address some of these things. And these, by 2025, uh, by the way, so just in a few years' time, we're encouraging volunteering. We're committed to be, you know, one of the top three providers of sustainability that was sustainability data for other companies uh, and organizations and policymakers, which also means, of course, very engaged on the policy front. We are a, an advisor and a knowledge provider to the UN on its own sustainability task force to the European Commission, uh, the World Economic Forum, et cetera, et cetera. So beyond the data piece, uh, we're very engaged on the policy piece as well. But beyond that, beyond that, and you mentioned diversity and inclusion, we're incredibly committed to this as well. And you know, while we focused a tremendous amount on gender and gender diversity, which is a critical issue, we're also committed to you know, minority inclusion all across all our businesses and all across where we, where we have a presence. And we're you know, 190 countries, we have a you know, global presence, and we're deeply committed to these issues. And you're right, George Floyd personally was a, how can I put it, it was a, it was a horrible event. I myself know that incident and watching that video brought my own history and my own memories that I'd suppressed, in fact, for a long time, and I could have been George. And so my, my personally uh, committed to this uh, issue as well, and working very much with the executive leadership team to make sure that we move beyond marketing statements into actual action because A, I think it's the right thing to do. B, I think it only represents the community and the global community that we serve. And third, I want us, for us to be known as a place that you know, fosters diversity, that propels diversity, promotes diversity. And at the end of the day, it, it just makes more business sense because of all the reasons that I mentioned that actually companies who are more diverse end up doing better longer term. So, so you know, hopefully that gives you a sense of our commitments on this point. Mm -hmm. It does. And thank you for sharing them. And also for your kind of the personal lens that you're bringing into your work, you know, at Refinitiv and being one of those agents for change. Staying on the personal topic for a bit, what's your drive when it comes to ESG? How did you fall into this? Or did you fall into this? Is this a more kind of intentional kind of life journey that has gotten you to where you are today with ESG being such a central thread to the different activities that you're involved in and leading at Refinitiv? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's a combination of both. It's a combination of looking at the environment and looking at where we can play a bigger role. And I know for a fact that, you know, our CEO and, and our executive leadership team is putting a great emphasis on these issues. I also see the connection, uh, as we talked about, between the environmental crime agenda, what we call green crime and sustainability. They're in fact very much joined 
Just because it's new and evolving doesn't mean it's actually new, really. It's been there all along. We just haven't paid attention to it. And I think that we can do more as a company in terms of what we can influence, what we can, uh, the value that we think that we bring to the table. And of course, personally, how can I not, as a citizen of the world, look at what's happening and be, you know, we all live under different jurisdictions, but we can see day to day the impact of climate change. And it's really about the question that you ask, that I ask myself, well, what are you doing about it? And I guess that's a, you know, mission is a bit of a strong word, but it's, a, it's a, certainly an intent uh, to leverage whatever I can bring and whatever, you know, effect that I can, can have, small as it may be. But, it, you know, it's, it's causing, uh, you know, making sure that you can look my son in the eye, uh, certainly to, to show him, you know, this is an issue that I know is going to affect you more than it's going to affect us. And the question is, you know, what, what role do you have to play in that? And, uh, and I think we all have a role to play in that. Mm-hmm. I have a son as well. He's four and he is, he loves animals. He wants to be a marine biologist when he grows up so that he can save all the animals. And, you know, we read these National Geographic books about different animals and, and they kind of always close with a description of the threats to those animals. They're, you know, endangered or at risk. And so often it, it falls into what you've talked about as green crime. And he always asks me, you know, what can we do about this? And I tend to respond with a kind of a, a four-year-old version of regulatory and economic incentives and addressing those. What would you say to my four-year-old? <laughs> well, if I'm lucky enough to meet him, that is a profound question that I, I'm not quite sure I can do justice. But what I would say There's a few things here. The first is the incentives piece. We need to have an incentivized culture, both from the investment community to incentivize organizations to take action on these and then for the allocation of capital to to vote. We also need incentives from the regulatory community. And I think here specifically as an example of the supervisors and the banking community, for, for example, who are an incredible important piece to allow regulators to really change the capital and how they're being allocated, what the expectation is. And both, there's a stick, of course, with increasing capital for organizations who are not doing the right thing, if you will. There's also a carrot in ensuring that you can lower their capital when they are doing the right thing. And what does capital mean? Why is it so important? Capital is a direct influencer in terms of return on equity. It can be a direct influencer on return on investment, ROI, And the same thing for credit agencies who have an incredible amount of influence in terms of rating companies, assets, securities as a function of, you know, the environmental impact that they, that those securities assets may have. And so the green crime agenda or the green deal agenda should be incorporated with credit agencies. Why? Because in fact, the cost of funding, they impact the cost of liquidity. So I think that once we have that type of a common approach with many of the actors that have a significant influence on behavior, and let's assume that you know humans are, are economically driven persons that respond to the incentives around them, then let's start there. And then of course is awareness raising, but the, the planet is raising our awareness by itself. 
So hopefully uh, that's not a very controversial statement in terms of what we need to focus on. But I think those are th that would be my long-winded answer, Emily, in making sure that we pinpoint the nervous system or the financial system that has a significant influence on behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. My four-year-old is about to turn five, so I think he's just about there to be able to internalize what you just said. <laughs> Well, Tay, there's so much that we can unpack here, but we're running out of time for today. It's been really wonderful having you on the Principled Podcast, and I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion. To those of you that are listening, my name is Emily Miner, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks so much, Tay. Thank you, Emily. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.